Hello, my name is John Lovering and I am the host of Audio Theatre, heard from 6 to 8 p.m. on Tuesday evenings. On the last Tuesday of each month from 6.30 to 8 p.m., I produce a live storytelling broadcast called True Tales Radio. Our announcer is Amy Antonucci and our MC is Pat Spaulding. Each month we have a different theme and invite members of our Seacoast community to come on in and tell a personal experience true story centered around that theme to our in-studio and on-air audiences. You are about to hear a rebroadcast of True Tales Radio that has been edited to one hour. If you would like information about the show or on how you become a storyteller, please email truetales, T-R-U-E-T-A-L-E-S, one word, at wscafm.org. We are also on Facebook at True Tales Radio. Thank you and enjoy this hour of local storytelling on Portsmouth Community Radio, WSCALP 106.1 FM. Next we have Jeff Line and Heather Ann McClellan, who live in Kennebunk, Maine. They met each other in the third grade. Years went by. They married other people (laughs) for a while. Jeff spent some time in the Air Force. Heather became a homemaker. Then in 2006, they found each other again. This coming October, they plan to marry each other. Aww. (laughs) I love the story. Both are now musicians who perform together as October Road Acoustic Duo. Songs will be featured in the two stories they'll tell, Lighthouse and Dare to Dream. Marblehead, Massachusetts has a lighthouse in it. It's not a pretty lighthouse. If anyone knows the lighthouse I'm talking about, it's uh, Chandler Harvey State Park. And there's this large iron monstrosity with a big light on the top. All rusted. All rusted. It's certainly not your stereotypical New England lighthouse, but it was our lighthouse. And the day I remember well driving into that lighthouse with Heather in the car was the day I was finally going to do it. I was finally going to get her to kiss me. (laughs) I was a uh, freshman in college, and Heather was a senior in high school. But things happened much sooner than that. In my fourth grade year, Heather's third grade year, her family moved from Topsfield to Saugus, Massachusetts. And I remember the day in Sunday school, I saw that beautiful little red-headed girl, as Charlie Brown would say, and I was smitten from that day. I was. He had hair then. I did. I'm bald now. It was carrot red. The hair on my face used to be on my head. But I remember that day well, because it was another redhead in the church. I was the only one. And uh, so I, I felt a kinship. And uh, and she was pretty, and she was friendly, and funny, and nice. A little shy, yeah. but then so was I. Um, so really, in, in my fourth grade year, and Heather's third grade year, is when we met. And we were friends pretty much from that moment on. Um, we saw each other in school. We saw each other in church. Always looked forward to Sundays, sitting in the pews, looking for her. Where is she at? And uh, she, later, she told me she was doing the same yes, for me. I was. Years uh, Years later... <laughs> He didn't know. <laughs> now that we no, I didn't. Now that we've had a chance to look back on our lives, there are a lot of things that uh, find out we were doing um, very similar during signals. the years. Signals, things were happening, movies we were Pay watching, attention. laughing at the same lines, things like that. Yeah. But uh, we went uh, through uh, elementary school, and of course, um, we were in different elementary schools, different times, and uh, middle school uh, for a little while. We'd see her in the hallway, or she'd see me and smile and say hi. And then high school, and that's really when things started to happen. I uh, always wanted to kiss Heather, but could never get the nerve. And of course, you know, I was too young at the time anyway. And uh, <laughs> we, we went through our freshman, my freshman year, and then she came into the high school uh, in her freshman year. And uh, again, pass each other in the halls and smile and say hi and see each other at church. I but... loved your smile even then. Oh, thank you. I loved yours. Um, <laughs> We went to our, uh, I asked her to my junior-senior prom. Saugus High, there's two proms every year. One is the junior-senior prom, and then they have the senior prom. And uh, I was a senior that year, 
and we did the uh, production of uh, You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown in high school. The uh, drama club in uh, Saugus High had just started uh, putting on shows again, and that was the first one. And I was Schroeder, and she played Peppermint Patty in that show. And, uh, can you see it? You can see it, yeah, right? Yeah. yeah perfect. <laughs> <laughs> through rehearsals and through you know, uh, just being together. Actually, we even had a class together in high school that year for the first time. I was a senior. She was a junior. Normally, you don't have classes together, but it was a CPR course. CPR and first aid. Yeah, and she was my partner. <laughs> I got to touch her. Oh, Yay. <laughs> with our sweaty palms. <laughs> with our sweaty palms. Um, so I got the nerve up finally and, uh, and asked her to go to the junior-senior prom with me, and she accepted instantly. Mm-hmm. I remember I right. did. Um, <laughs> Pay attention. <laughs> and uh, through, through the years, you know, through the time in, at the play and things like that, I was always trying to, you know, get closer to Heather. And Heather, we had been friends for so long, she didn't want to uh, ruin the friendship. Now the pushier he got, the more I pulled away. Of course, yeah. And the uh, the junior senior prom was a wonderful night. That it was, was. that it was, was a wonderful. fantastic night. A great time. And uh, it wasn't long before that actually was our first trip to our lighthouse. That's right. Um, I got my license. I got my car, and I went by and I picked Heather up, and uh, got lost, completely miserably, terribly lost, trying <laughs> to okay. find Chandler Hovey Park <laughs> in Marblehead. We were supposed to be home by I don't know, eight o'clock. Mm-hmm. I think. I think it was 10.30 by the time we made it home. We finally we found the lighthouse. cell phones then. No, no cell no phones. Cell phones no then. way to communicate. We no finally way. found the lighthouse yep. and then got lost coming home. <laughs> and truly, it was lost. I wasn't intending to get lost. You know, car runs out of gas. Oh, shoot. Geez. Oh, what are we going to do now? But uh, our parents, yeah, we, we caught a lot of trouble over that. But uh, that didn't stop us. It didn't yep. deter us. We went to the junior-senior prom and enjoyed that. Um, And then she was pulling away at that point, as she just mentioned. Mm -hmm. Um, And I had no right, looking back now, to feel dejected because we were just friends. We weren't dating. We weren't girlfriend-boyfriend. He was my best guy friend. Um, But I had already asked her right after the junior-senior prom. And I told him that. You did. I did. You did. But I wanted more. Most guys do. (laughs) (laughs) Right after the junior-senior prom, I asked her to go to the senior prom with me. But several, a couple of months were in between, and I didn't hear from her, I didn't see her much, and I got discouraged. But uh, I, I asked her whether or not uh, we were still going to the senior prom, and she absolutely had still planned on it. Mm-hmm. So uh, we did all the right things. We got the corsage, got the uh, dress, time. had an amazing time, had a, a night in Boston at a friend's house. Yep. Still didn't kiss. Nope. Held hands. <laughs> we held hands. Didn't kiss. I loved holding his hand. I went to I Salem. I got I into it. Salem State College that yes. year, so I started going to Salem State College for law enforcement. Yes. Uh, I wanted to be a criminal justice major, and Heather got the lead in the high school play that year in, in her senior year as uh, Sandy in Greece. And I heard about it, and I got the idea. The light bulb went off in the head. Sandy kisses Danny, right? <laughs> so I called Heather and asked her, "You want someone to read lines with? Maybe." Sure. And she was all for it. Absolutely. <laughs> So I went and picked Heather up, and I went out to our lighthouse. So I had the plan. It was there. Stopped on the way just to get some snacks. Didn't ask her what she wanted. I came out with Mountain Dew and Reese's Peanut Butter Cups, and she went crazy because it was her favorite at the time. I didn't know that. It was just guessing. No, I honestly didn't know. Didn't know. I was just guessing. So we pulled around the corner, and here comes the lighthouse, and I'm getting all excited. Pull into the lighthouse parking lot and didn't face the water like most people would. I turned the car and faced the fence of the house that was adjacent to the park. And I don't, still don't know why I did that to this day. I think maybe I was looking for some privacy for that big moment. Oh, my. And <laughs> as, I didn't know. As always, we lost ourselves in conversation and time. We read lines, never got to the kissing scene, talked a lot. And next thing you know, it was time to go because I think I had to go to work that night or something. And, and we never did kiss that night. Missed opportunity. Missed my wow. chance. Oh, big time. Missed my chance. It wasn't too long after that that I, I enlisted in the military. Not him. I messed oh, up. You. I went in the military shortly after that. It wasn't too long after that. I decided college wasn't for me. I'd go in the military. So I went in the Air Force. And two nights before I went in the Air Force, I stopped by Heather's house. Heather has an amazing singing voice and always did. And I told her that night, Thank no matter what you do in life, never stop singing. He did tell me that. And then through the years, um, she married an Air Force guy. She married a guy who was in the Air Force Academy. He was a cadet at the time. Um, so they were an Air Force couple, and I was in the Air Force. And uh, occasionally we'd see each other. We'd pass each other, you know, coming and going at different bases. Totally um, unplanned. We were um, 
changing stations. And every time we seemed to go to another station, he would be coming into ours. And I'd be like, oh, there's Jeff. And yeah. he'd call and we get in touch. And, and I married a girl when I was in Okinawa. She was an American girl. She was uh, in the military as well. So I was married and we had a couple of kids. Uh, we were stationed in Turkey and we got uh, uh, orders to to uh, change station to the Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs. And Heather just happened to be at Peterson Air Force Base in Colorado at the time. She helped us find an apartment. She helped us get settled. And we went to their house for dinner a couple of times. Yeah. And no matter what, it was always like it was just yesterday. We hadn't seen each other in 10 years. Nope. And the conversation just picked right up, just like we were at that lighthouse yeah, again. Yeah, I'm sure it was evident it was. to everybody else. I think it was. That... I think it made our spouses at the time <laughs> uncomfortable. Uh, we didn't realize. Just blah, 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 start talking to each other. And, yeah. and it was wonderful. And it always yeah. was. Fast forward a little bit, it was uh, 2006, and uh, I was at a point in my marriage that the marriage was falling apart. Uh, Heather's marriage had already sort of dissolved. She wasn't mm -hmm. quite divorced yet, but um, it'll be in the next story, a, a little piece about that. And I always told myself through the years, no matter what happened in my life, if I ever had the chance to kiss Heather, the next time I saw her, I would do it. 2006. <laughs> Thanksgiving weekend. Thank God you did. I finally got my kiss. Aww. And, she and the fireworks kiss. went off. There are fireworks. Oh. I swear. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, that's it. And it was a year later, we made another trip to our lighthouse. And this time, we faced the water. Yes, we did. <laughs> and this time, we took a walk. And this time, we kissed and held hands and did yeah. everything you're supposed to do. Right. I waited 34 years for a kiss. He became a wow. man. That's what it was. And it was worth every day. Yes. Every day of that wait, it was worth it. I love you. It was. I love you. So I wrote a song about our lighthouse experience. And this one is inspired by, it's on our album. We actually released a CD. More on that in the next story. And uh, this one's on our album uh, that we released back in October. And this one's called Lighthouse. Gamble the 
the light is gonna come. You know it's in the cards, but not yet. I'll set it down, but I'm still not sure just what it all means. Confused emotions, crazy, wonderful dreams, a burning desire, yet so much more. Shine that lighthouse light and guide me to the shore. Back to the shore. Back to your door. Back to the shore. Back to your door. Thank you very much. Thank you. And that uh, that was the song Lighthouse. Finally, we got that kiss. And uh, and it was worth every day. And it was like wow. <laughs> and th all through those years, um, as I mentioned earlier, we found out there were things about each other that we didn't know. Mm -hmm. um, that was just everything we had in common. Everything that uh, we had no idea. We had no idea. Of course, we knew music meant a lot to us. We're both mm -hmm. published poets. We've we've written poems. We've uh, been published in various places. And so we love writing. We know we love music because mm -hmm. we were in drama together. And uh, we found out that it was music that really is what binds us together. And doing an acoustic duo was just the right step. In 2006, when I saw Heather again, it was under not the greatest circumstances. Mm -mm. Heather's um, previous marriage had fallen apart, um, mostly because the individual she was with didn't want to deal with her medical issues. Yep. Heather had some serious medical problems um, that were compounding. And uh, doctors really didn't know exactly what it was. There was all kinds of diagnoses. It must be this, might be that. Terrible, and terrible headaches. And I'd never had headaches before um, that. And I didn't know what to make of that. So we were trying to figure out what was causing everything. And I started to have neurological issues. Mm -hmm. um, and I started to get a tremor in my hand. And I couldn't, I couldn't figure out why that was happening. And so I went to the doctor. And they said, oh, it's, it's nothing. You just probably have a strange virus or something. You need to go home and rest. So I did that, but things didn't get any better. I was just kind of um, very tired and, and and not being able to do anything, and my I started to lose use of my left side of my body. Um, my leg wouldn't work. Um, I started to have to drag it and kind of think about making it move, and it it was it was scary. It was. I thought, well, maybe I had a stroke or something. So we were trying to figure it out, but we went from doctor to doctor to doctor, and and uh, finally, I think it was 2007, or no, no, 2009, 2009. they diagnosed me with Lyme disease. Wow. And she had actually and had it, it for almost happened. six years. It started, yeah, in 2003, yeah. 2003, end of 2002. And because she had other medical issues and she was on doses of antibiotics for those, mm -hmm. it kind of masked the Lyme disease. So. You know, Lyme is strange, and it, you can do some research on Lyme, and, you, and you'll find out all kinds of things. But they do an initial test for Lyme, and if it shows up negative, um, they just say, oh, you, you don't have Lyme. They do an initial test, and if the test is negative, you don't have Lyme. If the initial test is positive, they do a secondary test, and if the secondary test says, no, you don't have it, then they say, oh, you don't have it. But if you do have it, and it's masked when they do that first test, they, they don't, don't go any they further. Don't any they don't further. do the second test. So luckily we found a Lyme literate doctor and uh, he said, the heck with the first test, I'm going to do the second test and we'll see what happens. And she was off the chart for six co-infections of Lyme disease. Yeah. So uh, heavy doses of, of antibiotics, uh, lots of uh, physical therapy. When I saw that's Heather the, in 2006. That's the thing. That's the, right there. Yep. She, this man. She had a cane. Her neck was stuck to one side. She was completely tilted. She had tremors. She would walk with this cane and... You would think you were looking at a 90-year-old woman. I mean, she really was... Pretty bad. Yeah, but she still looked like this. She he still did her clothes. This. She still did her makeup. <laughs> she that. still did her hair. He felt here. <laughs> but she was there. But I didn't believe him. See, I didn't believe her. that he could see me when he walked up that and, first time. But I could. But and I he could. did. Yeah, you did. And I knew that Heather had he to sing again. It. I knew that music was going to be the key and that Heather had to sing again. First, get well. Get well. And then we're going to sing. So I was writing songs during this time, and we were I was playing the guitar at home, and, and she was singing along with me when she felt up to it. And, uh, and then it just, things started to finally happen. 
the, the Lyme disease is in remission. She's finally getting better. She doesn't use a cane anymore. She's, you know, still that wonderful, bright, amazing spirit she always was. Thank you. And I remember just being shocked when I found out. Actually, what had happened, she, uh, an email that my mother had sent out, because my parents from were friends with group. her parents and yeah. friends through the church and stuff like that from when we were kids. Heather saw my email Mm-hmm. Or, or my mother's email on this list and reached out to my yeah, mother contacted and said, hey, his mother and to ask Jeff how he doing? was because I hadn't heard hadn't from heard, him in a few years. Yeah, so. we'd lost touch. And I remember when my mother told me that she'd heard from Heather, one, I was excited, <laughs> and then two, to find out what had gone on. I was, I was devastated. I was angry. Um, and then when I saw her for the first time, I just couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe that it could get to this point. Um, but you got through it. With you and, and God's help. And we, we had a dream. This we man. had a dream, a couple of dreams, lots of dreams, actually. And one was that Heather would get better, and the second is that we would sing, and we would become an acoustic duo, and we would go out there and get our music out there and just do it. Um, so we worked on that, and it took Heather a long time to get out of her shell. But I was I'm finally able to get her it. out. I was finally <laughs> able to get out of that shell and say, you're good enough, honey. Really, you are. You can do this. And we realized a dream uh, last October, October 5th, 2013, we released our first CD. And uh, it's called October Road. And uh, it's all the songs about our relationships and life and, and where, how we got to where we are. That's available on Amazon and iTunes and CD Baby. We're out there, October Road Acoustic Duo, if you're interested. Mm-hmm. We also have hard copies for sale if anybody likes them. Um, but uh, we finally realized that dream. One of the songs on that album is called Dare to Dream. And it's a song that means an awful lot to us. And uh, last year, the song took on another meaning that has to do with love. And uh, in Maine, they finally passed the uh, Gay Marriage uh, Act last year. And there's two men that uh, are in our church that are a wonderful, amazing couple. They've been a committed couple for 32 years. And last year, finally, they were able to get married. And uh, it was our honor and privilege to be there because they're just absolutely wonderful men, very, Dale and very, Dennis. Very nice. And uh, this song, while it means a lot to us, we knew it would mean a lot to them. So we dedicated it to them at their pre-wedding party. And there wasn't a dry eye in the house, I don't think. No, I don't think so. Um, it was moving. It was absolutely... And ever since then, And ever since then, this song we dedicate to Dale and Dennis. And uh, it's all about daring to dream, never letting go of your dreams no matter what anybody says, and realizing them. Have you ever loved larger than love? Have you ever dreamed bigger than dreams? Have you ever wished so hard you thought that your heart would burst apart at the seams. Well, life don't always work as you plan. That doesn't mean it isn't worth a try. From a trip you can't recover, but a fall is forever. So don't go falling while closing your eyes. Just hope against hope, rail against doubt. Every breath that you take. Make each moment count and smile in the face of the devil. Dare to dream all of your dreams and reach out for something no matter what they tell you. And don't let anyone, don't never let anyone define for you what it all means. Just Your feet don't ever touch the ground It's a message that only Your heart can deliver Your soul singing songs without sound You don't have to be wise to see the future It's all right there in your dreams Believe in yourself And follow your heart Walk the road to wherever it leads And hope against hope, rail against doubt, 
every breath that you take. Make each moment count and smile in the face of indifference. Dare to dream all of your dreams and reach out for something, no matter what they tell you. And don't let anyone, no, never let anyone define for you what it all means. Just No one can hold you down Your dreams are yours to hold It's never wrong to chase a wish It's only wrong to ever let it go So dare to love larger than love Dare to dream bigger than dreams And whenever you wish so hard Don't ever forget To say I believe Just hope against hope Rail against doubt Every breath that you take Make each moment count And smile in the face of all trials Dare to dream all of your dreams Storyteller Donald G. Hans hails from Kittery, Maine, where he lives with his wife Susan, three cats, and a dog. Donald is a native New Englander, recently retired from a career as a police officer and union official. He believes in service to the public and is also passionate about his personal relationships, as you will hear in his story, Love Gone Right. This is the story of me and my first love, who became my wife. Despite the challenges, the regrettable adjustments we made over time, I would argue that our relationship represents love gone right. By the end of our story, I hope you agree. The story begins in 1975 when my family moves from Central Falls, Rhode Island, to Fall River, Massachusetts. Such a move necessitates some change. For instance, I had attended the Central Falls High School, but would do my senior year at the Bradford Matthew Shaliner Durfee High School of Fall River. I attended the same church, the Salvation Army, but now in Fall River, Massachusetts. It was there I met Norma Lee Pritchard. At the time she was 17, I was 18. Our relationship was good. We felt as kindred spirits. Of course, we had our differences. I was not a very emotional person. She was. I was willing to forget when things didn't work well between us and our friends. Sometimes she wasn't so willing. I looked at us as two personalities balancing out the whole of the relationship. Sort of like salt and pepper. They taste differently alone, but they spice our food well. Therefore, none of this bothered me. Of course, we had many things in common. Both of us were making the adjustments of leaving our teenage lives behind and becoming responsible adults. Both of us had basic Christian values, and we were both looking for a better future. A better future was defined as family in our own home and financial stability. Completing my senior year with average marks and not being able to afford college I went into the service. This, of course, required a lot of change, time away from hometown USA. After boot camp, I was stationed on the United States Coast Guard Cutter Gallatin, a 378-foot vessel, 
It was hard being away from family and Norma. You know the adage, absence makes the heart grow fonder. Our relationship had grown. There was talk of marriage. And now I had a career, and we could afford it. 11 November 1978, we married at the St. Cornelius Church of the Centurion on Governor's Island in New York. It was a beautiful church, large with stained glass windows lining the sides. It had a colorful row of battalion and regimental flags decorating the chapel sides also. Not only was the church beautiful, but so was the day. I remember it well. I have a picture of me and Norma coming down the aisle after the ceremony. I was grinning ear to ear, and she was crying tears of joy. <laughs> At first, the marriage was incredible. We lived in an apartment on the island where you could see the Statue of Liberty out of our bedroom, and the cruise boats come and go from Manhattan from our parlor window. We would sit and watch as the SS Norway, the MS Volendam, MS Staten Dam, MS Rotterdam, and others as they would glide swiftly in and out of view. We knew that we would have our turn for cruises later. Right now, all we wanted was to enjoy each other's presence and plan our family. Many times we just sat for hours and looked at each other. Words were not necessary. Our spirits were joined. Serious problems occurred when I had to be away. I was in the service when they called, you go. I spent months underway. She became very depressed and was unable to manage our affairs. Counseling, wives groups, and other things were tried to alleviate the problem. Nothing worked well. She began to suffer socially and lose her friends. All the while, I was underway and unable to help. There were two incredibly bright spots during that time. The first was when our first child was born. The doctor guessed we would have a healthy, bouncing baby boy. I showed up at the hospital with the appropriate outfit to bring him home. When the child was born, we had a girl. I rushed to the subway and went to the local Woolworths and bought a pretty yellow dress with a bee on it for her to wear home. That dress is still in the family. We named our daughter Angel. The next year, Joshua was born. Joshua was a SIDS child, sudden infant death syndrome. He would just stop breathing, and the doctors didn't even know why. Our son Joshua was hooked up to a machine that would tell us if he stopped breathing, and we'd just have to stimulate him till he breathed again. My children are healthy, and I'm very grateful for that. Soon after, I was stationed in South Portland, Maine. We lived in Saco. I had the only car, and Norma was having a terrible time handling the family when I was away. Her depression and other mental health issues thrived. We went to counseling to improve our marriage for two years. She could not control her medical, mental issues, and I had trouble coping with that. Our finances had taken a turn for the worse as the medical bills and prescriptions showed up that we could not afford. We eventually declared a form of bankruptcy called wage earner. I lost a lot of time at the manufacturing job I had. It got to the point where management was tracking my time off. I was afraid I would be fired. When I discussed the matter with Norma, she just said, they must have children too. They must understand. All I understood is that I had the sympathy of my supervisors, but they still said, we are a manufacturing facility and we need you here. I received a letter essentially putting me on notice for taking too much time off. It got to the point where I believe that she was unable to be the wife and mother that the family needed, and I was unable to make up the difference. I believe we both struggled to save our marriage and family. We failed. She applied for a divorce. She also left town and moved back to Fall River, Massachusetts. I remember the day when I said goodbye to the children and she drove away. 
I believed it was crushing for me and my kids. Shortly after they moved to Fall River, the state became involved and the children were put with a relative as she was unable to care for them. At the time, I was earning little money and living in a rooming house with a shared bathroom and no kitchen facilities. Again, I was unable to make the difference the family needed. The day of the divorce came. I was horrified as to the consequences of this action on all the family. She didn't show up and the judge threw out her request. My lawyer spoke up and claimed irreconcilable differences. I was called to the stand. The judge asked me some questions and I left the stand gazing at the floor in shame. I went out to my car and passed out crying on the steering wheel. Within a few years we had both remarried. I was happy for her hoping that she had found happiness. Unfortunately her marriage lasted only a few years and she moved back to Fall River, Massachusetts. There she shared an apartment with a friend who also had mental health issues. On 19 April 2000, she died in her sleep. I was devastated when I received the news. She and I had stayed in touch and I only wanted the best for her. The family was in a tumult as no arrangements had been planned. I surprised some by stepping forward and volunteering to do the eulogy. I stumbled over the first few words. I spoke of watching the ships from our apartment, of the birth of our children, of how much I believe we both struggled for our family. I addressed her mental illness and thanked the many people attending who had tried to help her through. I held up her personal Bible and read some of the entries claiming God to be hers and now our solace. At the end of the eulogy I said, if this is the last thing I can do for my friend, I will do it. I turned around and picked a flower from an arrangement and gently placed it into the folded hands of Norma. I then walked back to my chair looking at the floor. I was to find out later that there wasn't a dry eye in the room. Looking back, when we married, we swore to love each other till death do us part. Despite all that has happened, we still loved each other. Truly, this is a story of love gone right. Thank you. Good evening, everybody. We're going to start with Ron Tamanio, who lives in Elliott, Maine. He's a writer who also hosts WSCA's program, Don't Dis My Ability. Originally from Beacon, New York, Ron has the distinction of having become friends with Pete Seeger, also a hometown boy from Beacon. Ron's story, Practical Joke on a Friend, describes playing a joke on a different friend, one with whom he worked back in his 20s when both of them were in the furniture business. Is that correct, Ron? Close enough. All right, come right on up and tell us your story. Well, good evening, everybody. I love stories. I think I come from a family that loves stories. And i it's a great way of keeping friends and memories and alive with us at all times. I recently was, uh, with the help of my daughter, I'm, I'm totally lost in the technological world if it wasn't for my daughters and they were one of them was helping me fill out one of those internet security questions for online banking and it was what's the name of uh last name of your best friend and i and it just popped out post and i have this best friend whose name is frank post he uh lives out in california and i hear from him uh, a couple times a year, I either call him or he calls me, and that's all we really need. He's a man of few words, but he's devious. And I will uh, give you an insight into his character by telling you what he did as a practical joke to his sister. 
who was too sweet and too naive and too young to get him back, but I got him back for her. <laughs> ah. So we would work uh, in this factory making electric socks, which I don't expect you to believe. It's not a form of capital punishment. Uh, it's just something we did, and I, I was always embarrassed to say we made electric socks, and we did. And the craziest thing in the world. I'm sure they're illegal now, or they should be illegal. And anyway, uh, every day he would, uh, he had this sister. Uh, everybody was poor back then, and he had this sister going to college, and she couldn't afford a car. So she was in that subordinate position where she had to kowtow to her brother Frank and make sure she did everything properly so he would let her use her car, his car. So one day he would come in and work and he said, yeah, Ron, today I told her to check the tire pressure. Dutifully, she'd check the tire pressure and get back to him. I said, yeah, she checked the tire pressure. And she'd go in. That's when there was no such thing as self-service. The um, man uh, who owned a station in town, a small town, he would fill up the gas and he would do everything that you asked. It was you didn't. F nobody put the gas in in uh, 1960s. Next day, he would uh, say, uh, you know, check the uh, washer fluid. Why don't you? Oh yes, Frank, I'll do that. Sure. And June, his sister, would uh, dutifully do that and wanted these driving privileges to go to college. It meant a lot to her. And so every day, three, he was devious and patient. Those are really great combination for evil. <laughs> and he was, and he would, and he would slowly set her up. And every time the man would say, "Your washer fluid is fine, uh, tire pressure is fine, uh, little things, brake fluid is okay." And and then came, you know, the the humiliation, practical joke moment. That he that he had the patience. I don't have the patience for that. You know, either I think of him at the spur of the moment, or it's lost. And then he's and then he says uh, he says June, uh, when you get gas today, uh, ask the man to check the horn fluid, would you? <laughs> so she goes, not knowing anything about cars, and he. And she comes back, and she was horrified. She was so mad at him. She said, Frank, how could you do that to me? My, her, she says, my face turned be red. Everybody at the station was laughing at me. There's no such thing as horn fluid. <laughs> so I took it upon myself to get back at him. Uh a few weeks later, as I say, he was he was a man of few words. He wouldn't say much. And I used to like to talk. The, the work day would go faster. And, uh, you know, uh, and, and I, I guess this, there's some time last because he went to join the furniture business with his father, and I joined right after that. So now we're, we're, we're delivering furniture. And... Um, and I, I say, you know, Frank, we're in dealing with the customers. You've got to be friendly. But he wouldn't talk to anybody. And he would hardly talk to me when we were working. And that used to frustrate me. So we had this whole truckload of uh, furniture to deliver. And I'd go up when the nightstand was on the second floor. And, uh, and I don't know what happened. It just hit me. Uh, he would come up behind me with another nightstand. And I'd say to the Mrs. Jones, I said, uh, "This is my my friend Frankoff. He comes from Serbia. He speaks no English whatsoever." And I'd say, "Frankoff," and I would motion. You can't see me because this is radio. You know, John, this is an oversight. There's no TV here. And I would motion with my hands, "Frank, Frankoff, over here, down, down." And he would look at me, but he couldn't say anything. So we would go down the stairs, and he said, why did you do that to me? And so all the, for the next half hour, he would come up, and I know he was fuming and he was mad at me, but he couldn't speak, you know, and I would make up these things about his family in Serbia and all of this stuff, you know, how he had to leave in disgrace, uh, something about a young girl and stuff like that. And uh, they're like, oh, isn't that tragic, yeah. 
Frankoff, bed here, bed here. So we did this for about a half an hour, and then uh, I got back. I got revenge for his sister, June, and that's my memory of my practical joke on my best friend. Thank you. So, Pat Spaulding of Rye, New Hampshire, is a writer and storyteller who's been telling tales locally since the early 80s. She's been married, single, and is now a majorette with the leftist marching band. Pat is happy to live in this vibrant Seacoast community where she is pleased to join us as MC of the True Tales radio program. Tonight's story, based on one she told many years ago, is titled Ram Dodge Rerun. Pat. Thank you. My romantic history has not been the standard definition of success. It's been a lot of trial and error. Trials with boyfriends, errors with marriage, good and bad times with both, and in between, a lot of dry spells. During those dry spells, I allow myself to indulge in fantasy. This past Valentine's Day, Detective Sergeant James Hathaway entered my room at 4 o'clock in the morning. Tall, thin, serious, he walked through the doorway of a PBS mystery directly into my dream where he stood there, arms folded across his chest, legs apart in cowboy stance, sizing me up. He could tell I wanted to be kissed. So he pulled me into his arms and accommodated, surprisingly, it was good for him, too. I cupped the back of his head in my hand, felt the bristles of his short hair against my palm. The kiss continued. I inhaled the clean scent of his freshly ironed Oxford cloth shirt, ran my hand across the top of his shoulders and down the length of his spine, and still the kiss continued for a minute, two minutes, three minutes, until Inspector Lewis walked in, nodded to Hathaway to follow him, and off they went to solve more crimes in Oxfordshire, England. <laughs> I woke up reverberating with the texture, touch, and scent of that kiss. The sensual feeling lasted all of Valentine's Day because the body remembers. A friend of mine once told me, you fall in love with somebody, not because of their fine qualities, but because something about them appeals to your imagination. And I think it's that simple. Trouble is, what are the formative years of the heart's imagination? When we're mature? Nope. Preschool. Rewind to the 50s. My heart's imagination found its focus when I was about five years old, astride a plastic rocking horse, staring wide-eyed at the cowboy shows on television. His dark, squinty eyes were sparkled with laugh lines. He wore a confident smile. Denim jeans hugged his narrow hips, and he had spurs on the back of his boots. His body was so thin and agile that he could easily jump into the stirrups, dig a heel into Trigger's side, and in one smooth motion, horse and cowboy were united as a single, well-intentioned beast that galloped across my TV screen as I rocked on my plastic pony and dreamed that one day I would straddle the saddle right behind me, him, <laughs> Ooh, him, wrap my arms around his waist and become part of that bounding physical force for truth, justice, and the American adventure. <laughs> because Roy Rogers appealed to my heart's imagination. And I think that it is this initial appeal for me that was the beginning of the macho attraction. An attraction I am ashamed to admit that I have yet to thoroughly outgrow. Ba-dum, ba-dum, da-da. Fast forward to 1982, I met him at a party. Dark, squinty eyes, cocky smile, cowboy stance. Uh-oh. <laughs> I knew he was trouble, but that only sweetened the deal. My Roy Rogers fantasy wearing a black hat, and Dale Evans was nowhere around. <laughs> so I jumped on that pony, and I rode it whenever he showed up. 
which was unpredictably now and then, off and on, for about three years. I let him set the rules. I let him set his boots inside my door with the toes always pointed toward the driveway. And when this rowdy romance finally played itself out, I wasn't ready to let it go. Even though I knew better, I missed those boots. I needed to get over this guy, so I wrote a story about him. If you can define it, you can dismiss it. I made up a name, Ram Dodge, and turned him into an attractive macho character that other women would recognize from their own life experience. They did. The story took on a life of its own and gained me local fame for a short amount of time. But rather than getting this guy out of my system, I just traded my infatuation with him for an obsession with Ram Dodge. I'd fallen in love with my own fantasy creation. <laughs> this did not help. Fast forward to 2006. I'm now in my late 50s, divorced. Everybody's communicating through email, dating online, finding each other through Facebook when I start getting the inquiring emails. Bum, ba, da, da, da. He was separated on his way to a second divorce. Claimed he'd like to get to know me again. As if we'd ever really known each other in the first place. Well, it had been a dry spell. There had been no interesting action in my down there department for quite some time. My hormones, or lack thereof, hadn't been calling for any. Little V had pulled down the shades and was closed for business. Or so I thought. But when the flirty fun emails started, I flirted back. He still seemed smart, had a good enough command of the English language to be playful with words. One night, after pouring myself a glass of Pinot Noir and trying to figure out what to pull together for my solitary supper, the phone rang. He was at Walmart. Was this a good time to come over? Well, I'd taken a shower that day. There was enough time to floss my teeth. Sure, now's a good time. Five minutes later, the sound of a Harley engine got louder and louder until it slowed to a low rumble and pulled into my driveway. <clears throat> he slung his leg over this cherry red machine like he was climbing off a horse and took off his helmet. He was bald. Didn't matter. He slipped his Ray-Bans into the pocket of his black leather jacket, walked up to my open front door and smiled that familiar smile. Trouble was back. Black leather gloves, zippers, buckles, belts, and studs, and denim jeans standing there in my kitchen. I poured him a glass of wine, poured a second for myself, and watched him set his boots by my door, toes pointed toward the driveway. Uh-oh. He sat down on the living room couch. Every part of me wanted to cozy up right next to him, but I resisted and settled into the chair opposite him so that I could get a better read on his teeth. Had he been taking good care of his teeth? <laughs> it's hard to know underneath all that facial hair. We caught up for two hours. The familiarity of watching him talk as we exchanged histories was comforting. That same lift to his left eyebrow. Maybe I did know him. Maybe I didn't. But I, what I did know for sure was that this man, sitting across from me, who had inspired the story I'd told 30 years before, still had the appeal of Ram Dodge. Guess I better be going, he said. It was only 9.30. Tomorrow's a working day. Yeah, better mosey, I guess. He smiled at the word mosey. Or maybe it was the hesitation in my voice when I said, I guess. I followed him out the door to the Harley. You want to sit on it? How did he know? 
I approached the seat side saddle. Like a girl, he told me. I didn't mind looking like a girl. I just didn't want to look like a granny. So I whipped my leg up and over the seat to straddle this heap of stationary power, gripped the shiny chrome handlebars, and with both legs hugging his cherry red Harley, I found myself rocking back and forth a little, trying very hard not to sing happy trails to you, but sing innocuous things instead to keep this all in place because the body remembers. Finally, I slung my leg over the leather seat like a cowgirl, I'd hoped, and hopped off. He gave me a hug, a friendly kiss, Rubbed his very loud engine and rode away until we meet again. We had met again. My kundalini energy had been shaken and stirred back to life. Not knowing what else to do with it, I jumped up and down in my driveway while little V pulled up the chaise, looked out the window and wondered, hey, are we back in business? I didn't know what to tell her. Am I going to climb back onto this fantasy ride where everything that's old is new again? Who knows? The future is cherry red and ripe with possibility. So thank you, Ram Dodge Rory Rogers, Detective Sergeant James Hathaway, to all lovers, both real and fantasized who inspire the heart's imagination, I'd like to wish happy trails to you until we meet again. Happy trails to you. Keep smiling until then. Who cares about the clouds when we're together? Just sing a song and bring the sunny weather. Happy trails to you till we meet again. This is Amy Antonucci, and on behalf of all of us here, thank you for listening and joining in. And I'm going to turn it back over to John Lovering for the final few minutes of audio theater. Happy trails to you Until we meet again Happy trails to you Keep smiling until then Who cares about the clouds when we're together? Happy trails to you till we meet again. Betrayal.